Romans 1, 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, do you have this? Claiming to be wise, that's all right. Claiming to be wise, this is Romans 1.22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. With the death of Samson in Judges last week, the section of Judges and the section covering the life and records of the Judges comes to a close. He's the the 12th and final judge, tribal governor, if you will, uh, and then his death is the finish. So we're not going to talk about any more Judges at this point. Now, up to this point, though, if you haven't been with us at all, or if you have been intermittently, or every Sunday, and you want to refresh here, here we go. Up to this point, we've seen the Israelites' rebellion against God to push out the idolatry and the idolaters in the land and to fully possess the land that God had promised to them. And then they got in this habit, this cycle of turning away from the Lord, and then he sends, turning away from the Lord in, in different ways, but, but worshiping other gods, uh, uh, habits and, and rituals, like the peoples of other gods that worship other gods, marrying uh, people from other faiths, all this, okay? They get in a cycle of habit, turning away from. Then God sends a foreign nation to come oppress them. Then they, in response, cry out for relief, for rescue. Then God sends a judge, a deliverer, to rest them out of that oppression. And that's the cycle that we've been on. But the the cycle overall, if you zoom out a little bit, shows us this growing Canaanization, if I can use that word, if I can pronounce that word, of the Israelites. Meaning they look like the Canaanites. They, 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 the Israelites, act like, sound like, the people around them rather than their covenantal God. Now how, how bad was it? Well, we ended with the last judge and we, we spend a lot of time on his life, the book does, and zooms in on the last judge being selfish, lustful, breaking vows, marrying a woman outside the faith. She worships a different God. She believes a different story. That's how bad it was. The judge that was supposed to rescue them from oppression them and to lead them uh, into how they're to live under the reign and rule of God. <laughs> now he, he's just as corrupt as, as the nation is. He's just as morally bankrupt as they have been. And it, and it ends with, and he judged Israel and there was peace. No, it doesn't say that. That's the formula over and over again. When a, a judge rescues them from the oppression, it says, and then he reigned for however, Deborah reigned for however, and there was peace for however many years. For Samson, it says, he judged in the age of the Philistines. That's his record. Nothing even happened. Nothing really changed. Philistine oppression and rule over the Israelites stayed the same. The Israelites continued to be like them worship their gods, worship Yahweh plus their gods, interweave different faiths and practices. 
called syncretism. But now with this first phrase, there was a man. Now there was a man. God lets us know we're focusing on something different, something else. And the rest of the book isn't judges, it's these scenes of ordinary Israelites during the day of the judges. When there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, here's little scenes. This is what it looked like in the little family, little pockets throughout the country. And these are tragic, dark stories of a holy, set-apart people being formed more by the people and culture around them than their God and his word. They do what's right in their eyes they do what's right in their own eyes, not what's right in God's. So again, why are we preaching through the book of Judges in 2023, 2024? It's because this is very similar to what we live in. The whole notion or the, the overruling reigning commendation or pronouncement for you to do you, you to live however you want, you to choose your standards, your morals, whatever you feel. And, and even if it's a desire, and if it's a desire that doesn't match up with any other member of society, and if it's a desire that doesn't match up with society, and if it's a desire that doesn't match up with any society throughout all of human history, it's okay because now you can say what's right in my own eyes and that's it. So that's so. How can we not co-opt, adopt, roll into the same thing that the Israelites did and say, "Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Everyone do what's your own." This is really just a religious buffet. So do as you want. You'll get. You'll figure it out. Our desires left unchecked ends in destruction. That's the point of these stories. Our desires left unchecked uh, ends in destruction. Chapter 17 and 18 focus on the, the religious worship side. That's what these stories, the theme is. Like what does corrupt worship look like up close in person? Or, or you could say it this way, how to treat God, your father and creator, as a mistress. That's what chapter 17 and 18 Chapters 19 and the rest cover the moral, the ethical side. Like when, when Yahweh isn't your North Star, humans do depraved things to one another. When Yahweh isn't the North, when someone else, something else or someone else is the North Star, humans, morally and ethically, do depraved things, horrendous, bleak, terrible things. I just preached in Alito. It was family uh, uh, Sunday. All the kids were in there, and I was like, thank you, Lord, that we're not preaching what we're about to preach because it's only going to get darker, bleaker. Most of you probably never sat through a sermon on Judges 17 through 21. Why? Because what I just said. It's tragic. It's dark. But if you don't know, and if your kids don't know, are not exposed to the dark, and the evil really in the world, how are they going to be able to a little bit comprehend the real radiant glory of God's grace and mercy to them? So let's zoom in on one family in the hill country. Judges 17, verse 1. I don't know what page number it is. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around your chair. Grab it. 
take it forever. 2.25, Joshua judges Ruth, we're judges. Verse 17, sorry, chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you and that I heard you place a curse on, here's the silver, I took it. Then his mother said, my son, may you be blessed by the Lord. All right, I, what just happened? That's so quick. That is so quick. Number one, Micah, his name means who is like Yahweh. You should know that. The original readers did. Two, he steals 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. This is the same exorbitant amount that the Philistine governors gave to Delilah for, him to, for her to deliver Samson to them. Micah's mom is loaded. Okay, she's got a lot of money. We know that. This is in the hill country, so she's like, I don't know what she's doing. She's the bootleg of the hill country, but 1,100. He steals, he dishonors her. Now, she knew the silver was missing, right? Because she places a curse on it, on whoever stole it. A curse, this is, would be like, may God strike down whoever stole this money. Okay, that kind of curse. May God strike down whoever stole my money. Now he overhears the curse and he doesn't want to get struck down. So he confesses and returns it. Here it is. And she immediately blesses him. She's grateful, right? I would be. 1,100 pieces of silver. But she's also pleading for God to cancel the curse that she's already invoked. Right? That's what she's blessing. Remember God, I said strike down. Well, now I know who stole it. May you bless him instead. Can we replace this? That's her response. Now, something to note. I can't make this statement outright, but as we talked about throughout these stories, in the narratives, how do you understand who the people are and, and if they're responding to God appropriately and if, if, if this is wise and good in their life? Or, or how are we supposed to think about these characters? It's through their actions and their words that really, really begin to form what the, the author is trying to show us. With that said, she doesn't seem to, be, to look for genuine repentance. And without discipline and repentance, what will protect him from repeating the same action, the same behavior in the future? One author said, a condemning and punishing parent hurts a child. Condemning and punishing parent hurts a child. I think we get that. I think some of us know about that. Some of us live that. Some of us are parenting now in reaction to that. A condemning and punishing parent hurts a child, but so does an excusing one. And this is what we find with Micah's mom. I think. Okay. It may begin to understand, make sense of why he's the way he is, is maybe how she, she parented him. She commends Micah to the Lord, to Yahweh. That's of note. She doesn't say Elohim, just God uh, in general. She doesn't commend him to Bel, to the asterisk. She commends him to Yahweh. She's named him who is like Yahweh. So she seems devoted to the God of Israel, right? Verse 3. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally con consecrate. Yes, mom. The silver to the Lord. Awesome. For my son's benefit to make a carved image and silver idol. Oh, no. 
I'll give it back to you. She wants to bless her son with an idol. Parents, what do you what do you want to bless your children with? What do you want to bless them with? What are you going after? What are you trying to instill in them and, and bless them with and leave them with? I can talk about your wants, but I also talk about what are you functionally doing? What are you currently functionally blessing them with? What are you giving to them? A false god? Uh, a false view of this world? Uh, half-hearted allegiance? And you're like, no, no, I know the right answer to that. Okay, functionally, what are you blessing your children with? Money? A, a life better than yours? Whatever that means to you. Everything they want? What, what I'm trying, I know what we as a church are trying to do is, is trying to bless our children with a view of Jesus that captures their heart. That's what we're trying to give them. We're trying to give them a, a household where, where they can grow and mature. I want to bless them with your transformed and transforming presence. I know we can feel responsibility and then take that responsibility and some of it's heavy and so, so sometimes we limit that responsibility and, and for, for men sometimes it's, it's that hey I, I provide and so I mean that, I, that's a lot I'm doing a lot in this to be honest a lot of work this is a lot of effort this is a lot of my time and my energy this, my, this is like I'm trying but then it kind of terminates there and and I think the greatest gift that you can give your children besides Jesus in communicating to him, to them, Jesus, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't save them. But the greatest gift you can give them is, is your transformed and transforming presence. Yeah, provide, yeah, provide, but you. You get to give them you, yourself, and your relationship with the Lord and your presence to them. But here's a danger, parents. You're not safe. You're not safe even when you're sincere. Even though you are sincere, that doesn't mean it's true. Micah's mom is passionate about this. Seems very sincere about that. I'm going to conse consecrate this to the Lord. But wrong. She's wrong. So he, verse 4, returned the silver to his mother, and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol, and it was in Micah's house. Well, <laughs> maybe she's not that sincere. <laughs> she gives five pounds. If, if you don't have a translation that helps you or you don't know your ancient currency exchange rate, five pounds does not equate to 1,100 pieces of silver. Okay, five pounds is about 200 shekels of silver, and so where's the money? 
mom, you said, I'm going to come. I, you said, you said, we didn't ask. No one told you to. You said, I'm going to consecrate the whole thing. And you're like, here's 200. Go make that thing. But she is sincere on an idol. And she gives it over to the, the bladesmith, the blacksmith. He gets his fire blazing hot, heats up the silver, and beats it with a hammer meticulously. If you know the craftsmanship, none of my boys are in here, but we watch Forge and Fire sometimes. We know like the heating of the metal and then beating it into shape and how much it, work it is. And to shape this, if it's pieces, to forge weld and all to make it into one cohesive, beautiful piece takes hard work, sweat, but also takes this artistry and time. What I count, though, is four of the ten commandments are broken in four verses. At least four. He stole from his mother. He dishonors his mother. She lies. She makes a graven image. He covets. But for at least four, right? What does he covet? The temple. But at least four. For sure. Four. God in this graven image We've talked a lot about idolatry up to this point in Judges, about the, the deeper things going underneath our service of what we're loving and worshiping, what we're giving our hearts to. And if it's anything other than God, then it's an idol that we should turn from. But here in the screen, an image comes at a, a different angle, and we haven't talked about this. We really haven't seen this. And so when you think about breaking this commandment, why? What is happening? Well, well God forbids his people to think of his very being as similar to anything else in the physical creation. He, he says it in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 4. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. To, to think of him and think of his being in terms of anything else in the created universe is to misrepresent him. It's to limit him. It's to think of him as less than he really is. That's what's at stake here. That's why he's jealous, because to make a, a graven image of God, like a golden calf, for example, may have been an attempt to, to portray God. That's what happens in the golden calf. People argue about it, but we're not sure if that golden calf was supposed to be its own deity that is worshipped which is, would be really rare or for them was it some sort of representation of Yahweh to them that they could access him through and understand him through and be able to uh, acknowledge and deal with him through this understanding of him and that's what we think it is and this is what's happening here too of this is we're gonna we're gonna dedicate consecrate this to Yahweh he explicitly says no I don't want that and they're saying no this is for you And to do that, 
is to limit him, is to diminish him, is to say he is less than he really is, to portray him as a calf, is maybe to talk about his strength. And he's full of life, like a calf. But, but it's also a horrible false statement because you miss his knowledge and his wisdom and his love and his mercy and his omnipresence and his eternity and his independence and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice and so on, right? That's what happens when we grave in an image and worship him through an image. We, we take pieces of him or parts of him that we really like or can accept and then we shave off the ones we don't necessarily want. God, though, is jealous to protect his own honor. He eagerly seeks for people to think of him as he is and to worship him for all his excellence. And he's, he's angered, rightfully so, when his glory, when his character is diminished or falsely represented. Are you not? If someone comes and, and tells your, your, your friend, man, uh, George is, is, is pretty vindictive, right? And they're like, no, not at all. Not at all. And that you, they feel something for you. Like, no, you're not vindictive. I don't think he's vindictive. That, that's how God feels about himself. When you, when you shave off piece of him and only think about him in a way or parts of him, he's like, what about all of this? Deuteronomy 4, he says it this way. God does. Be careful not to forget the covenant of your Lord your God that he made with you and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For your Lord, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is spirit and will not be diminished by a graven image. And you, at this point, if you know me well enough, you know where I'm going. You probably don't have a graven image on your mantle at your house. You might. I don't know what of. But the underlying issue is there one way or the other. And the underlying issue is this. We desire to shape and revise God. That's the underlying issue of a graven image. We desire to shape and revise God. We, we refuse to let God be himself in our lives, to use that term. Intentionally or not, we picture him in a way that we can accept and, and remove or shave off the things that we can't accept. You've, you've said it or you've heard people say it. I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as... When I, when I consider God, one attribute comes to mind. Tim Keller, in his book, Judges for You, he says this. The most serious way we do this is by consciously, intellectually rejecting part of the scriptural revelation of God. We do this whenever we say we can no longer accept a God who does this or who forbids this. When we use the term no longer, we wrap ourselves in the mantle of so-called progress. In fact, what we really are saying is, our culture's distaste for this idea means we must drop it. 
We must have a God that fits our culture's sensibility. This means we, like Micah's family, are reshaping God to fit our society and hearts instead of letting God reshape our hearts and society. The confrontation is someone's got to give. That you, you, you can't be simultaneously running the same path with God along with him and nothing give. Either you adapt and are reshaped into what he beautifully does and makes you more joyful, loving, gracious, forgiving, merciful, kind, patient, or you reshape him into who you are and you stick with the things you accept and and can get your arms around. The problem with that for me is I don't want to worship a God that I can get my arms around. I don't know about you. That's my opinion. I just can feel that if I can, if I can understand you fully, if I can really make sense of everything, and if I, if I can really nail down, if, if, if I can get your, your complexity reduced to the irreducible complexity of just two things, yeah, you know? No, no. Let him, let him reshape our hearts instead of reshaping him and our image. We can also simply ignore or avoid those passages. Meaning, first is you can intellectually reject this consciously, right? But others of us can just stay away from that. Stay away from those things, those passages we don't like. God is forgiving and gracious, but we withhold forgiveness. So maybe we stay away from those things that talk about his forgiveness in Ephesians 4. We don't read those things. God is generous and blesses. We can be stingy, and so we stay away from the, the generosity aspect. We don't think about him as being generous. We don't think about him as lavishing his people with grace. And so we, we can be stingy. God is a father, that's true, but we can view him primarily as a cosmic cop riding on the clouds ready to arrest, pouncing to arrest can view him that way, but the Bible speaks of him as his heart is always ready to pounce with mercy, with compassion. That's his pouncing. That's his readiness to move. That's his first foot. And then Keller adds, we can also do this by, by making all morality subjective. He says, Imagine two professing Christians who are having sex with each other, though not married. They're fine with it because they prayed. That's good. They prayed. And then felt peace about it. He says, irrelevant. They are ignoring the objective commands from God and his word. Like, it's good that you prayed, but just because you felt sense of peace, (laughs) that doesn't supersede the clear objective commands of God which means probably just the general principle for all of us or warning for all of us is if we feel a sense of peace we shouldn't always trust that because sometimes we feel a sense of peace when our desires are being met and that is peace for us 
And when God sometimes confronts us when our desires aren't right and we don't like that, we think that's not peace. We think that's chaos. That's kindness. We will follow God's law and wisdom so far, but twist it or add to it so we can do what we like. That's, that's on full display here. That's what's happening with Micah. Verse 5, this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, if you've read Exodus or Leviticus, you may know what an ephod is. You may know what household idols are. If not, neither do I. It's still hard to understand. Now, ephod isn't because that, that's the draping in the, in the temple. But these household idols in the Hebrew is teraphim, actually. It's just one word, and, and it's later connected in Zechariah 10, 2 to, to diviners, to uh, divine or uh, messages, dreams, visions. Uh, oracles. Even in 18.5, a group comes to, to Mike and asks him for a, a word from the oracle, and that's what we think this is, is that. Long story short, Micah is counterfeiting the temple. That's what he's doing. These are a direct challenge to the ephod of Israel's official priests and the Urim and Thummim God sanctioned for oracular purposes. Oracle, I can't say that word. That's Exodus 28, if you want to look at it. But then he installs his own priest. And at this point, it, you read that phrase, there's no king, and you should also feel, but Micah's acting like a king. <laughs> his house is his tiny little kingdom. He has a treasury, his mom. He builds a temple. He, he shapes temple tools. He installs a priest. King Micah is ruling his household. Dads, I tell you, it's hard to shepherd your family when you're ruling over them. It's a side note. It's hard to go the right way, even if you're sincere, if you won't submit to God as your king. And then so you act like the king. And, and if you know, like, if Paul Tripp has taught us anything about marriage, it's when you go into marriage with your you're, you're a king and you have a kingdom and that other person's a king and they have a kingdom. Uh, conflict, fight. That's what you're signing up for. Well, then how do you address that? Uh, well, one becomes the king and the other one just submits to it? No, that's abuse. Uh, they both have no kingdom and they just say, oh, we don't care. Well, that's usually what? Laziness, nothingness. They drift into anonymity. What is it? Like? How can you have that unity that you submit to one king? You submit to one king. Uh, that's how you can have that. But he doesn't do that. He's the king. He makes everyone really do what he wants. You'll see he's going to even control more and more as it goes. But another way to think of this, if, if we can with me imagine this, this, this land where the Israelites are, and, and if you can imagine of thinking about this as the enemy has invaded the people of God and set up an outpost in the middle of the people of God, a little house of falsehood and darkness 
uh, that has the illusion of godliness. It's got the, the temple kind of stuff, but, but the enemy is trying to push back the light and comes often under the guise of light. Do you see this? It, it's, it's the enemy counterfeiting what God does. God sends outposts of his kingdom called churches to set up shop and to, to, to be a place that shows the world how, how heaven's going to look like. It's not, it's not, this is not perfect. We still have fights with this indwelling sin, and there, there's issues, but, but we get to show the world what, what, it, what heaven's going to look like a bit, a, a forgiving people and a gracious people and a, a humble people and a, and a diverse people that are also united. What is this? But that's what's happening here in the reverse. The enemy's counterfeiting and sending a dark outpost in the middle of, of, of God's people. Now, I've known many folks harassed and oppressed by demonic activity. I also know folks who have had an, what seemed to be an angel of light come to them and deceive them. Let's hear this. It looks good. It sounds good. It sounds kind of godly. looks kind of godly. But if you would get underneath it, you would see how hollow and empty it is. You have to get up close and you have to look and you have to search, but, but if you would see it, you'd see it's hollow and, and empty. Continues in verse 7. Now there was a young man, a Levite, from Bethlehem and Judah who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from, Micah asked him. He answered him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, now I know, now I know, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. If you don't know about Levites, the Levites were given the uh, 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 spiritual leadership for the nation by Moses back during the golden calf, actually during that time. In the golden calf, God, Moses confronts the people for bowing down to this golden calf, and the Levites stand with Moses. And at that time, Moses uh, says, all right, you're going to be a priesthood. You're going to be the priest of the nation. And that's where the consecration is. But here's how bad it is now in Judges. Even the priests are impacted by idolatry. It was the judge. It was the governor, the, the, the greatest leader. Now we got even the priest. Daniel Block writes, he's a laid-back professional minister following the path of least resistance and waiting for an opportunity to open up. You, you hear that kind of exchange, like, you need a priest? You, you got a job in housing? Yeah, let's do this. Live with me. Be my father. Be my priest. This is, again, an upside-down world. He asked a young man to be his father. And Micah now thinks he has a legit priest. Uh, so heaven will open up his doors. But do you understand the problem here? He's treating God like a pagan. This is fundamentally pagan. He has 
grabs a Levite, now a Levite in a home, and he thinks he's really just a lucky charm, this Levite is. He's a good luck charm. Hey, you're going to help me. Now God's going to open up the heavens. Now he's going to bless me because I have a real Levite here. But this approach in general and specifically employing a Levite to manipulate the deity is fundamentally pagan. This Levite's nothing more than good luck charm. And rather than call Micah to repentance, the Levite just capitalizes on the corruption of the times. This kind of pagan worship was all familiar to them. It's religious efforts. So let me, let me just remove that word pagan so you can just think what this might be in you. Religious efforts to get access to God so that he can get, so you can get God to do what you want. But, but is that faithful to Yahweh, no. The goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so that he can get you to do what he wants. The, the, the manipulation, the, the, the interacting with God like that is really to get him to serve you, but, but the good news of the gospel is that he does serve you and then changes your heart so you serve him. I started off with Romans 1, 21. But a few verses later in Romans 1, 25, Paul says it this way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So I need that, that shaping or reshaping in your heart. You, you can't stick away from this and say, hey, th this is the Israelites and this is a graven image. No, you have to, I think, wrestle with this of how do I view God? How do I see him? How do I relate to him? Is it one-sided? Is it lopsided? Is it very specific to this one thing but nothing else? Where your worship of him, he looks more like you or more like creation than who he really is. Another way to get at it is to think, does the God you functionally worship day to day ever disagree with you? And if he, he doesn't, then I would submit you're the God. Because the God of the Bible is going to disagree with you because he's straight and right and correct and true and beautiful and good and you're not always that. And so that's going to bump into him and he's going to confront that. But it's hard because this is, this is us. We like to limit him so that we can control him. Even like Micah. Do you see Micah? I'm going to be my father, and then I'm going to treat you like my son. <laughs> he got a priest now that he can control. It's a young man. He's going to say, oh, you can be my father, but no, you're, I'm going to treat you like my son. I'm going to even control this part. 
of this. And with all this false worship and wrecking God by images, the good news for you and me is that that Romans 1.18 backs up and says God's wrath is revealed against all this. However you've reshaped him, there's wrath for that. And you'd be like, no, there shouldn't be wrath. But God is loving, and any loving person does have wrath because when you see something going against the person you love, you hate that thing. You want that thing to stop. You're against that thing. And what God is against is this dishonoring of his glory and the skewing of who he really is. And so there's wrath for it. But Colossians says he sends Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one who everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by the image of the invisible God, Jesus. So his response to us reshaping him in an image that we can understand or control is to send himself the image of the invisible God, Jesus, to die in our place for that false worship so that you don't get eradicated, removed, destroyed, but that you then get pulled into the family and then you can see him now clearly through the face of Jesus that you're not confused, you're not unsure. You can see all the fullness of his radiant glory through the face of the Son. That's his response. To us, his image bearers. That as he, he loves us and takes care of us as his little image bearers, but then we skew that image of him and the understanding of him. He then sends the image of the invisible God who's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place preeminence in everything. For God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the image of the invisible. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The answer really is to it is, how do you go to the Father? How do you engage with God? Is it some version of him or is it Jesus? Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so I, I just invite you to think about this of spirit. Is there something in me? Is there some way that I've been thinking about you, considering you? That maybe I'm not fashioned this, but there's and how. I mean, the Old Testament clearly, uh, Ezekiel talks about the idols of the heart. I'm talking about the graven images of the heart. How have you shaped him and reshaped him? where he's palatable, where you can accept, where you can deal with. And then ask the Spirit to do what he does and reveal the glory of Jesus to you. The image of the invisible. Let's pray. Father, I ask for that. I ask for a work of your Spirit to reveal 
pretty robust the full the fullness of you to be seen and celebrated I mean can we God would you help us glorify you in this moment to see and celebrate your goodness and your your manifold perfections all of them in Christ's name Amen